Hello, and welcome to What's Killing My Kale. This podcast is a production of the University of Minnesota Extension, hosted by Extension educators Annie Claude and Natalie Hoytel. In each episode, we interview a farmer, researcher, or educator about a timely topic around growing fruit and vegetable crops in Minnesota. Usually we talk about pests, but sometimes we venture into other important issues of the moment. This is Natalie, and I am here today with Julie Weisenhorn, who is an extension educator in horticulture, and Nathan Hecht, just finished a master's degree in horticulture. Um, And both of them have done some really exciting experiments over the last couple of years with uh, flowering plants, basically, and then vegetables to compare whether having flowering plants around helps with yields. And so... Let's just start out with you each telling us a little bit about yourselves and what you do, uh, your interest in horticulture, and then we'll dive into the projects. You want to go first, Julie? Sure, yeah. Uh, I'm Julie Weisenhorn. I'm, as Natalie said, an extension educator in horticulture. And I didn't start out being terribly interested in horticulture as a kid, uh, and it didn't really uh, blossom, pun intended, until... um, my husband and I got our first house in South Minneapolis, and it was owned by Carrie George, who uh, at the time was the head gardener for Eloise Butler Wildflower Garden in Theodoreworth Park. So we had this pretty standard South Minneapolis backyard, but we had some tremendous plants in there. And that got me really interested in that. I became a master gardener for Hennepin County, and then uh, decided that I really enjoyed teaching horticulture, and that's a primary part of my job is to spread the good word about horticulture and growing things and help people be successful with it. And, uh, and so uh, I had the opportunity to take over as the state director for Master Gardener. And uh, I also taught landscape design in the department before that as a teaching specialist. So. And now I'm a full-time educator, which I really enjoy. So I get to work with all kinds of uh, people from all different backgrounds, Master Gardener volunteers, uh, a little bit with youth also. And uh, so I've been in the department since, uh, I guess, officially since 2002, so about 17 years, and with extension since 2007. Yeah, and my name is Nathan Hecht. I just finished a master's degree in the Applied Plant Sciences program here at the University of Minnesota, I'm specializing specifically in horticulture. And um, in school, I studied biology and, and environmental studies, and that is sort of the lens through which I've entered into the world of agriculture, um, kind of from a position of, um, I've worked in um, like sustainable development and, and community conservation efforts, uh, environmental conservation in the past, and and just thinking about like the way that we grow food and, and is um, kind of the most direct way that humans uh, have a relationship with the land. Um, so started to get really interested in, in ways of um, integrating our ag- agricultural landscapes with the surrounding environment and um, started, I've been really curious about um, sort of these win-win scenarios where we can meet the, the goals of like food production at the same time that we're meeting the goals of ecological conservation. Um, so that's my background and my interests. Cool. Thank you guys for sharing. Um, so last summer, you both were doing these experiments to assess whether having flowering plants near um, fruit or vegetables would increase yield production or improve fruit and vegetable quality. Can you just kind of talk about your motivations for why you wanted to assess that in the first place? Sure. Uh, I got interested in it because um, with my background in landscape design, I'm kind of the go-to person for plant selection in our horticulture team and have uh, spent an awful lot of time working on a plant database as well uh, that's available to people via our extension site. And uh, one of the plants that always kind of gets the thumbs down from uh, people interested in pollinators are annual flowers. And yet we see in horticulture lots of uh, visits to annual flowers in, in public gardens particularly. And Mary Meyer, who's a senior faculty member here and an extension horticulturist and uh, at the time was my uh, program leader, uh, reached out to one of her graduate students, Michelle Wisdom, at the Arboretum and said, hey, let's see if we can do any observation on what 
uh, pollinators are visiting the annual flowers in the annual garden at the Arboretum. So that's the garden at the intersection of Three Mile Drive and where you can kind of come to a T in the, uh, in the road. And right now it's full of tulips and bulbs and pretty soon those will be dug up and, and they'll be planted with warm season annuals. So Michelle went out and took a look at that and long story short, it developed into a four year study looking at pollinator visits and what kinds of pollinators visit. Uh, ultimately, it was about 30 varieties of annual flowers. But one of the things that I wondered about is, is so annual flowers are great. Uh, they look beautiful. They are, you know, attractive. Some of them are attractive to pollinators. But is there a connection between the annual flowers and improving crop production? And particularly in crops that don't, that are self-fertile and don't require pollinators per se to actually produce fruit. And so I chose peppers, bell peppers, ace peppers for my crop. And uh, we're going into the second year of, of growing out what I call now pollinators for food, where we are, uh, last year we did some, uh, we did uh, four sites and we had 36 bell peppers at each site. And half of those bell peppers were screened from pollinator visits and half of them were open to pollinator visits. And then we planted three of the types of, three of the varieties of these annual flowers we've been looking at near the open uh, pot pepper plants. And we found, um, we had two sites that had pro that were problematic, so the data wasn't uh, very good there. But at the other two sites, Grand Rapids at our research and outreach center, and at the Arboretum on the Three Mile Drive, uh, we found some, some good, uh, kind of a good pilot, kind of a good basis for uh, the products the, or the production being improved, the seed production, size of the plants. And Nathan and I, I picked his brain before we did this and asked him what he was doing with his project. And, um, and uh, so uh, this year we're looking at interplanting versus a flower patch uh, by pepper plants again. And we've got four, uh, three sites that we'll be doing. Uh, we'll have three plots at each site of control, uh, one that's interplanted with some of these annual flowers, and then uh, one that's got a flower patch. And again, Nathan's been super helpful with that. So that's part of the fun in the department is mm -hmm. being able to tap into people's expertise. Yeah. Work together. Yeah. So you want to jump in and yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, explain what you did. Totally, yeah. So my, my master's, the subject of my master's thesis research was looking at the influence of um, planting an annual flower patch uh, alongside um, day-neutral strawberry fields um, with the intention of seeing whether that attractive flower patch would um, sort of recruit wild pollinators from the surrounding landscape and be kind of a magnet uh, that has had a spillover effect for the strawberries nearby. Um, and sort of the motivation for that research was um, was again sort of thinking about the way that our agricultural landscapes exist within a larger ecological landscape. Um, one thing I've found really fascinating and, and has become uh, sort of a popular topic uh, for public conversation has been um, has been pollinators and the importance of, of pollinating insects. Um, and I think the reason that's interesting is because it's something, it's this quote unquote service of the ecosystem that we can't replicate really, that we can't, there's, there's no way that we can manage that. There's not some technology that can um, you know, necessarily be inserted, you know, barring walking around and hand pollinating flowers with brushes, which is, you know, some pe people have taken to um, in ex more extreme circumstances. But um, just this recognition that, that these plants that our farms aren't just simply production facilities that they are complex ecosystems um, and it's, that involves you know all, a whole ecology including um, insect visitors that end up pollinating flowers that um, and that that flower pollination is crucial for fruit set in so many of our horticultural crops um, like Julie mentioned some crops really require it um, like squash for example needs to be pollinated. Um, there are some of our crops like strawberries, um, for example, that, uh, that are self-fertile, don't necessarily require, like they can, they can be fully pollinated just um, with self-pollination or wind pollination. But um, some interesting research has been showing um, the sort of the economic and even um, 
sort of physiological benefit of having an insect pollinator being able to move pollen around on that flower. So that was sort of the motivation for my research. If strawberries is one of these crops that will self-pollinate, um, but some research was coming out showing that insect pollinators uh, could help boost fruit set even more. And a lot of that has to do with the way that a strawberry sets fruit. And so with that question in mind, I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder if, you know, if we could sort of introduce a different kind of, of management um, with a different perspective of, on what if we planted, you know, some annual flowering plants that aren't necessarily considered a primary crop, but could be a support for um, the, the crop of interest, strawberries in this case, by recruiting wild pollinators from the surrounding landscape. And there's and the reason that this, this research, this sort of fits into a, a larger um, area of research, people are becoming more and more interested in the impact and influence and importance of wild pollinators um, because of some of the threats to honeybee colonies and, and that we normally consider to be our primary pollinators for agricultural crops. And some interesting research is showing that um, that wild bees, wild insects, including some flies, which we can talk about a bit later, um, are very important and in some cases may be even more efficient pollinators than, yeah. than honeybees. Um, so that's really cool. And that was sort of the motivation behind my research. Um, thinking about, again, the way that, that our agricultural landscapes exist within a larger ecosystem. And maybe we can be more creative and intelligent about the way that we um, manage some of those services that are already there. Maybe we can enhance them or um, be more intentional about supporting uh, insects or organisms that are important. Yeah. So I think we often, like, we just kind of assume that, like, Pollinators are good. We need pollinators around. Right. Flowers attract pollinators. Therefore, let's put flowers next to the plants, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, as you were developing these projects, like how much research did you find that was directly applicable to farmers and gardeners and people growing plants about things like what is the right distribution and how do we do this in a way that doesn't necessarily take a lot of land out of production? Maybe mm -hmm. like using flowering um like row covers, oh, strips and, yeah, yeah. And, like yeah. I guess just mm -hmm. what kind of applied research did you find? Did like do you feel like there was a lack of research that led you to do these studies, or was there existing research that maybe helped you to design your studies differently? I think that it was. I I'm not the researcher that Nathan is. But um, I think that when I just when I was scanning through and looking for a similar type of research, it, it was there was a lot of things that were sim that had uh, similar components to it, mm -hmm. like looking at crops and what crop you know what pollinators pollinate which crops. There's pretty good information about that, but there was nothing quite laid out like this. We did find one. We actually both found the same one uh, from Brazil, and it was uh, growing basil by peppers, which I was excited because it's peppers. Mm -hmm. But um, so other than that, I don't know, Nathan, you did a lot more research into the um, literature review stuff than I did yeah. I think, initially. But. Yeah, I did. And um, what's been really interesting is to sort of see the development of this area of research just over the past couple of years of my, um, of my degree. Because when I was first... Um, when I was first looking into this, there was some research showing that, yes, wild bees are important and um, wild pollinators are important specifically. And, and, you know, maybe we can, it was sort of this response to um, the, the emerging threats to honeybee colonies and colony collapse disorder. And, and sort of there was a mild panic about, well, if we don't have honeybees, like what's going to pollinate our crops? And so there's this this kind of this public movement um, to start talking about pollinator conservation and integrating that into our production landscapes. Um, but like you said, Natalie, sort of uh, there was sort of a, an initial assumption of um, well, as long as we can support, you know, if we plant flowers, bees like flowers, and then you know that those bees will will pollinate our crops. Great, um, but there's all of these really interesting dynamics um, and. Uh, sort of issues that arise when you start looking into that research. And, and so it's been interesting to see um, more of the, those gaps in our knowledge be filled in over the years. I think when I, when I it felt like when I first started, um, 
the conversation was really just getting going, that there's this recognition in the academic community that, um, you know, this whole uh, tier of, of insects are, are really important. But then, and then people started talking about, you know, um, being more intentional about the way that we provide resources and habitat for pollinating insects on our farms over space and time. Um, and, and then there becomes some complications, not complications, I would say, but just um, then, then the questions need to get a little more nuanced about, um, well, you know, for this particular crop, what insects, um, what insects are pollinating it? How, how is that the ecology of those populations changing over the season? How, what about different floral phenologies of different flowers, habitat too, um, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, landscape context is huge. That's yeah. that's sort of the newest area of research is talking about how, um, again, how our farms don't just exist in these little isolated production facilities, that they're part of a larger landscape, and, and that's um, very important, and that matters for, for the way that we um, use some of these strategies or these techniques for planting flowers. Um, that informs a lot of our decisions as well. So I'm curious then for like a farmer who would be wanting to implement flower strips. Um, there are some really good resources around like Xerxes Society and mm-hmm. we interviewed Karen last year yeah. who can actually like come out to your farm and help you figure <laughs> out what to plant. That's the um, best case scenario right yes. there. <laughs> so definitely take advantage of that. Um, but I'm curious about both of your processes of like what resources did you use to figure out like Okay, so you're studying strawberries. Right. How do you then kind of match a good flower strip to that to, to match the types of insects that you want there and with your annual flowers? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, how did you go about choosing that mix and was it sure. intentionally paired with pepper or just trying out some different things to see what worked? Well, nice. Maybe I'll jump in here just sure. briefly yep. to um, something that I think is important about both Julie and, and Julie's and my project um, is that we're looking specifically at annual flowers Um, and because so a lot of the response when it's you know when we're looking at pollinator conservation um, especially has been the movement has been um, more around native native species perennials Mm -hmm. perennial wildflower strips and something like Mm -hmm. the Xerxes Society you know is something that's that's uh, sort of a a perspective that they push a lot um, and that I think is really important Mm -hmm. is uh, integrating more permanent perennial um, landscape and there, there's sort of a restoration element to it too right? like right. if we could right. restore sort of this area to um, wildflower like more of a prairie landscape um, then you're supporting the native pollinators and the native insects in that region and, and that's going to be mutually beneficial and and that's a great strategy and I think it's I, I'm very curious about it and that was sort of my inspiration for this project but then when the rubber kind of hits the road and um, you know you're talking to farmers about taking areas out of production or that and it can be complicated and, and take time to establish some of these more perennial landscapes um, and or these perennial wildflower patches and so when I was thinking about that um, my research is specifically in uh, on this annual strawberry production system for the Midwest these growing these day neutral varieties that um, can be produced more as annuals and that what's interesting to me about that is that um, apart from sort of its season extension possibilities, that it allows flexibility to a farmer, especially sort of a diversified farmer who has a lot of crops and they're, they're moving in and changing things um, from year to year. And sometimes it can feel like a lot of risk to um, say, okay, this area is permanently going to be in pollinator habitat. And so I sort of see um, you know, using annual flowers as somewhat more of a transitional um, technique or or just simply it, it provides um, more flexibility mm-hmm. and the way I was seeing it is um, you know if we're going to grow an annual crop like dangerous strawberries then we need an annual flower in this case I was using um, borage uh, which is a flowering blue herb that uh, in the gardening literature has been talked about as a companion plant for strawberries but I never found any academic research showing that link um, so that's where I started is like okay this is really interesting what if what if it um, can we experiment with using annual flowers um, in a setting like this that can provide like it would be less risky it'd be a lot cheaper and quicker to establish um, and it, it might you know provide equally as beneficial um, uh, outcomes right. as 
you know, it, it doesn't, you're not necessarily building habitat, but you might be, um, you know, encouraging pollinators and, and providing resources in a different way that aren't there necessarily. Um, and that could be interesting too. So, so there's some subtlety in, in the way that I think both Julie and I are, are using annual flowers in, in these, in this particular way. Um, it's not, it's, it's sort of an altered or it's inspired, I think, by the work of, you know, folks at Xerxes, for example, um, and their, their wildflower plantings, um, thinking about when we need more like flexible and easier to establish and cheaper techniques in the same realm, um, what are the role of annual flowers? And, and so right. uh, I think Julie's yeah. been coming from that perspective as well. I think, and, and the flowers for pollinators, the annual flowers varieties that we trialed and, and looked for activity, insect activity on, those were really, they stem from more consumer mm -hmm. uh, needs. And the fact that there are more people living in apartment buildings and condos and row houses, and they have small plots of land, or they have a community garden, and a lot, and some community gardens really only want you to grow annuals because they may rotate things around, they maybe till the whole area, you know, whatever their their practices are. So there was a big need for people who wanted to grow something for pollinators, but didn't have the ability or the finances or the desire to grow perennials. Yeah. And here in Minnesota, annuals are a big seller for retail centers because we're all coming out of these cold, dark winters and those annuals are ready to rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And so um, so that's kind of how we stem, how we started uh, with, the, with the annual flower trials. And what I did is I took the data that we had uh, from the flowers for pollinators, from the annual varieties, and I looked at the top three that were most attractive to the most insects, mm -hmm. particularly all three kinds of bees, honeybees, bumblebees, and other natives. That's how we classified them. Uh, we weren't getting down into actual you know, species identification. Um, and then I also chose plants that had a bloom season that was as long as possible. Okay. So the plants went in late May, early June, and these three plants, it was uh, Melopodium showstar, which is butter daisy, and uh, Helenium, let's see, were the other? oh, uh, Rudbeckia orange fudge, and a Cosmos called double take. And they all had a prolific bloom season, so a length of bloom that was long from June through early September, actually. And they were attractive to all kinds of the bees that we looked at. So it seemed to me that that was, you know, a pretty sure bet that they were going to attract a variety of insects and that they would also have this seasonal bloom that would last through the time that we were harvesting for peppers. So that's kind of how I decided uh, those things. Going forward, the plants that uh, rose to the top, there were nine uh, varieties, and we'll be matching those up in these interplanting because we don't want to have really tall plants. We want plants about the height of the peppers. We want them to have that long seasonal bloom and we want them to attract a wide variety of bees. So that's that's what I'm looking for in the in the plants that now I've got this subset of the original study and now I'm looking at okay which ones would be the best to interplant or the best to create a, a patch of flowers near the edge of the uh, planting. So that's kind of it's kind of matching things up. Height, <laughs> bloom time, and the pollinators that they attract that would be most uh, beneficial to the pepper plants. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, do you want to share some of your results that you found? Sure. Um, my super short, Nathan's probably, he's got more information, but my first year um, was more of, it turned out to be more of a pilot project. And I worked with Vince Fritz, uh, Dr. Fritz is up at the Research and Outreach Center in Grand Rapids. We had a group of master gardeners who took our data up there. They're, they're going to be doing it again this year. They were awesome. And uh, then we also had a site in Osceola, Wisconsin at the Horst Reckelbacher Farm. And Lindsay Miller, who's a staff uh, member, was uh, uh, the chief person out there who was taking flowers for pollinators information. And we're actually going to be doing the peppers out there. I, I, I correct myself. The other sites uh, for the peppers were the Arboretum, and then uh, also we had a half-sized one here in our children's garden for the kids to experience as well. And then also we had one in Purim at the uh, county fairgrounds. Uh, Purim and the campus were unfortunately 
We had pepper poachers. People who stole the peppers. I shouldn't say that because hopefully they enjoyed the peppers (laughs) and they wanted them and they loved them. That's great. But we wound up, uh, one of the things I did when I cleaned out the display garden uh, planting here in the kids' garden is I counted the stumps where you could see somebody snapped off a pepper and there were 107 and I picked only one pepper the whole season in the open area. Yeah, so it was a total bummer. Um, the ones that were screened were untouched because people mm. couldn't get under the screen easily. And uh, yeah, so 107 peppers, we would have had really good findings there. Uh, and then up in Purim, they actually had some, they had tobacco mosaic virus, they had some losses, and so the data got really kind of compromised at that point too. So we had two, two good locations. Um, we found that there were more significant statistical differences uh, between the open and the and the enclosed areas at the Arboretum site versus at Grand Rapids. There wasn't quite the significant statistical difference in those. And so uh, we kind of positioned this now as more of a trial. It was more of like a, hmm, let's see what happens if we do this. And I think we feel comfortable enough that we're moving forward with now to find out how is this going to be interplanted. So we'll be having uh, three sites We'll have one at the um, uh, through the Pillsbury United Communities, which is great because they do a lot of they have a food many food shelves. They cook a lot of meals for people, so the peppers will actually go to their kitchen mm-hmm. when we're done taking our data from them, and will so they'll really be something that um, you know benefits other people in the community. And then uh, and then we'll have uh, a plot out at. Um, the horse Reckelbacher farm out there. And those peppers also will probably go to that food shelf as well. And uh, and then the last site will be up in Grand Rapids again with the Master Gardener. So we'll have three solid sites. We'll have a control plot at each site and then we'll do an interplanting in one plot and we'll do the flower patch at the other. Kind of see what happens. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So for my project, just to remind uh, the <laughs> listeners what, what I looked at, um, I... Planted patches of borage flowers um, alongside day neutral strawberry production fields. Um, all this research was out in Morris, Minnesota, at the West Central Outreach Research and Outreach Center there. Um, and so the project was two years, and um, it was so the experiment was repeated in 2017 and 2018. Um, and my hypothesis was uh, that. I looked at strawberry yield um, as well as sort of insect presence, floral visitors specifically. Um, I sampled insects found on strawberry flowers within the fields and then also on the borage flowers. Um, And my hypothesis was that as you moved away from the borage strip, um, you would start to see less floral visitors on the strawberry flowers. um, And then that would sort of translate to um, somewhat lower yields or, or lower fruit set. Again, because um, because while strawberries are self-fertile, having insect visitors, having a greater number of, of insect visitors and um, efficient pollinators uh, is really helpful for strawberries to grow um, without malformations and to increase their fruit rate. Uh, and that sort of has to do with the way that, that strawberries um, in particular develop. That, all those seeds on the outside of a strawberry are, are known as achenes, and each of those need to be fertilized if the area right around that seed is going to develop. Um, that's why sometimes you might see some malformations, um, uh, sort of oddly oddly shaped strawberries. Uh, it could be pest issues, but it could also be um, sort of low pollination. Uh, and uh, so that was that was a hypothesis that sort of as you got closer to the the flower strip, um, you would see higher yields, and. Uh, and um, so as far as results, uh, we saw some really interesting trends. Um, there's just some, some, sometimes with, with data, like with, with research and with experimental design, it can be uh, difficult or challenging in field experiments to get all the replication you need to, to have a lot of statistical power and you know, be able to say that mathematically these are very different. Um, so we didn't see a lot of you know, statistically significant differences. Um, but what we did see was some really interesting trends. So in, in 2017, um, as you moved farther away from the flower strip, um, yield, well actually in both 2017 and 2018, 
total yield and total number of, of strawberries uh, tended to de- decrease as you move farther away from the flower strip. And, um, and in 2017, uh, the same was true for insect visitors, that as you moved farther away from the flower strip, there were less insects found on strawberry flowers. And, and the data wasn't quite as clear. There wasn't quite as um, many clear trends in 2018. Um, and that, that sort of shows the importance of, of having multi-year research because um, things can change over the course of, of several years, different weather, environmental conditions, different climatic conditions, yeah. exactly. Um, so, so those are some of my primary findings that, that there was interesting trends um, that sort of bode well for further research into this area. And then the other uh, interesting takeaway from my research is that, again, normally when we think of pollinators, we think of honeybees or bees or these larger bumblebees, these larger charismatic pollinators. Um, but mostly what I found on, on strawberry flowers were small flies, um, hoverflies, these uh, these flies in the Syrphid family um, that are actually bee mimics. They, as adults, they feed on nectar and um, oftentimes they're confused with bees because they, they can have some black and yellow uh, coloring um, markings on on their bodies and they tend to be smaller um and again sort of behave like bees uh but i found a lot of those hoverflies i found a lot of other different kinds of flies um smaller flies mostly and that was really interesting when i started the project i was assuming that mostly i would be finding different kinds of bees and i and i did find a lot of native bees sort of small like those small um green metallic sweat bees that are pretty cute and charismatic too but a lot of what I found was sort of these more um, gray drab kind of less less big uh, and less interesting flies um, and for me that was really interesting because I think that's an important message to, mm-hmm. to talk about an important conversation to have uh, especially when we're thinking about sort of these wild pollinating insects it's not just bees uh, it for many crops flies can be really important too and and that's sort of just within the last couple of years, um, research has been coming out, showing, uh, indicating that more and, and talk, having a conversation about sort of these underestimated pollinating insects. Um, and I love that because it sort of expands our, our definition of what pollinators are and um, allows us to see, uh, start to see the complexities of the ecosystem. Um, that it's not, it's not simply just bee plus flower equals fruit, you know, it's a, it, there's more complicated. It's, it's much more complicated and much more fascinating uh, yeah. than that. And I think that's a great role for the university to sort of dive into some of those questions and uh, a great role for um, extension education as well to, uh, to start to share that message. The interesting thing, too, is we had done the flower varieties. Morris was one of also our locations at the display garden, not far from where Nathan was doing the strawberry trials. And when we had we had a staff member who was seasonal up there and, and then we had master gardeners the second year and they always came back with so many flies because that was one of the insects that we had people look at mm-hmm. and so that was kind of a neat thing we discovered is that we both saw a ton of flies and we were thinking huh you know it's definitely i guess i found in my both of my uh studies is that they're it's definitely site dependent mm-hmm. yeah. um st paul campus for the for the variety trials of the flowers, the annual flowers. Campus had a ton of honeybees. Well, we're right across the street from the apiary. Yeah. And uh, and then uh, Osceola, uh, which is a wooded area and along the St. Croix River had a lot of bumblebees. And then up in Morris, we had a lot of flies. And it was similar to that uh, in all those, in the second year as well. So site, site dependent, you know, it's very site dependent on the pollinators you're gonna find. It's funny that you bring that up because when I was an undergrad in Morris, just I had this mm-hmm. like small class project in ecology where we were looking at flower visitors in the exact same garden that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. And I remember sitting there like fly, making fly. check marks yeah. Yeah, like, fly, 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 fly. Yeah. and being really disappointed and going back. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, like, there are only flies there. <laughs> and my professor said, yeah, they're really important. Yeah. It was kind of this like. This yeah, big the, uh, oh, moment, moment, I guess. Yeah. yeah, and I think, I mean, you know, that we, I think, especially in agriculture and horticulture, um, we find over and over again that there are no 
sweeping solutions for anywhere no, like that. It's, it's, all, it's always site dependent and it yeah. always depends on sort of your context. But what I think is interesting is, is sort of uh, just increasing awareness and open, opening yeah, people's absolutely. perspective to asking different questions and sort of asking those questions of, well, why are there so many flats sure. here? And, and, or, or just sort of being able to broaden um, your, your expectations about, um, mm-hmm. you know, what, what might be happening and and that's something I love about this like working in this area is the, the dynamic nature of it like you have to be paying attention you have to observe because it's going to be different depending on where you're like, where you're at sure. and there's a lot of there's good practices there's you know there's best practices there's there's research that can point us in the right direction um, but ultimately it kind of comes down to the growers um, and yeah. And their expertise with their land and their um, the context that they're working in, and it, and so uh, I think that's a really important element for for um, the university to to continue to to develop those relationships um, to be able to have those sort of those two way conversations mm-hmm. um, that there's you know there's resources and information that the university can offer, but also there's there's really important perspectives. And uh, expertise and insight that growers can yeah. can share as well. I think a lot of times, most of my work has been around pollinators. Has been just raising people's awareness. We have, um, I mentioned earlier, we have this children's garden, and we have a kids program called Go for Adventures. And the master gardeners teach it. And I asked them one day, I said, "What is it that you want these kids to come out of this day camp with?" And they said, "We just want them to be aware and to observe." And I thought, you know, that that was like, wow, that's such a it sounds so simple, but there's so many factors. And I, I feel the same way about adults. Mm-hmm. And particularly if they're growers, that being aware, for example, whatever crop you're growing, what pollinates it? Mm-hmm. And, and that maybe there's some habitat area, maybe there's marginal lands on your property that you can't farm. Yeah. But maybe that would be a great place to establish better habitat to yeah. attract those insects that and, and animals too, because there's also... Uh, there's also bats that pollinate. Of course, those are kind of different, but there's also, um, you know, birds that are important as far as carrying some pollen and, and whatnot. But mostly it's the insects. But that that might be a place to establish habitat to attract those insects that that you need for your crop. Yeah. And even crops that are self-fertile, like strawberries or peppers or tomatoes or whatever it is you're growing, that that might be, uh, you know, an opportunity to really, you know, bump up some of your production. That when you might see a, a you know, healthier fruit, better shape, um, bigger, heavier. Um, that's what we saw with the peppers. Is we were picking some tremendous peppers, and uh, and they they were you know a lot of seed, which is an indicator of good pollination. And then they were, you know, they weighed more. They were bigger. They I had some that were as big as my hand that I was working with. So. Um, and I know the viewers can't see my hands, but I have big hands. So, <laughs> but that was, I think. <laughs> so I think that's one of the things to consider too. Is is the more you know about the ecosystem around your farm or around your 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 land that you manage, that's you know you can really change things and improve things for those important insects. And and I would also say it goes beyond just poll- like just pollination right, and pollinating right, insects. Yeah. I mean, speaking of complexity and the sure, complexity of ecosystems. Sure. Uh, you know, I think pollination is a really interesting entry point mm-hmm. into this conversation because, again, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's economical. It's <laughs> yeah, it's, it's economical yeah. for some people, and it's yeah. it's it's not something that we can replicate with technology. Uh, it's something that we depend on the ecosystem for. Sure. And 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 again, it, it does have this. There is sort of this this somewhat direct relationship to uh, improved pollination and and fruit set and fruit yield. Um, but you know, but some of these habitat elements or, or some of this these types of sort of what I call farmscaping strategies, um, you know, have have other have other benefits for your crop. You know, if if you are providing more flowering plants, that might attract more insects, and those insects could attract um, more birds to that area who can help with pest control. Sure. Um, maybe you're you're planting in a way that. Uh, that helps to conserve water resources and helps to protect erosion. You know, there's, there's these these types of strategies have have multiple um, right. multiple benefits over space and time. And and it's interesting to talk about sort of the specifics um, 
and you know things like attracting pollinators but um, I think it's really interesting when you can have these mm-hmm. multifunctional landscapes and these mm-hmm. um, these multiple sort of countless benefits yeah, um, yeah. that and, and that that to me is what's so intriguing about this is that there's countless benefits to uh, to managing your farming or your gardening landscape as if it were as if it were an ecosystem a complex thriving abundant ecosystem rather than simply a production facility for the crop that you need right. I would say I think yeah. most farmers know that know that totally. and are totally. very actively Absolutely. practicing that yeah. but right. one interesting difference that I saw, or something I was thinking about with both of your trials, especially Julie, you said at the Arboretum, there was more of a difference mm-hmm. between the screened-in plants and right. the, mm-hmm. the plants that were just out in the sure. open versus in Grand Rapids. And then Nathan, like your trial was in the middle of this like really diverse, amazing horticultural display right, garden, right. right? And so in these two environments, it maybe didn't matter as much because you're already surrounded by this really like mm-hmm. vibrant ecosystem. Uh, and not that Grand Rapids isn't, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's its own ecosystem. It's, it's a totally separate one. It's a little shorter season up there, too. Yeah, and I think you need more data to say this for sure, mm-hmm. but it led me to think, like, maybe if you're in the middle of just, like, corn and soybean fields all around you, right. there's more to be done there. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah. it both, I guess, places a bigger burden on people who sure. really want to be restoring land, but it maybe right. also means that every little piece that you add does right. that much more right. for the systems around you? Yeah, and the and, and I remember when Eric Mater from the Xerxes Society, who's a graduate of the department here, he came and spoke at our uh, Kermit Olson annual uh, presentation a couple of years ago. Nathan, I think you were there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the he got some big award that day, if I recall. <laughs> I and uh, I remember he he was talking about the impact that big areas make on pollinator habitat. And while, while small gardens are important, home landscapes and things, you know, everybody should be doing what they can. But he is, he turns his attention to those big areas and working mm-hmm. with people who own large tracts of land and, and, uh, uh, have responsibility for those spaces and that those, that's where you can make a big impact. When you turn some of the land over that maybe isn't so great for your main purpose. If it's production or if it's, you know, a, a park area or whatever, but you turn some of that land over to uh, really be pollinator habitat and really really zero in on it, that it can make a huge difference. And, and like you said, Natalie, sort of paying attention to, mm-hmm. to what surrounds the area um, where you're making those observations. Right. The, the right. most recent research that's coming out, uh, up, you know, using these sort of farmscaping techniques and farming for pollinators, uh, has been talking, has been has sort of put forth this idea of the Goldilocks hypothesis, um, or sort of more specifically the, the intermediate habitat um, theory. This basically this idea that uh, you kind of need somewhere in the middle, uh, as far as landscape context and, and natural surrounding natural areas, to really have a benefit from something like planting a flower strip. Because you know if you're surrounded by a, a, an abundant, diverse, multiple flowering, you know, all these flowering resources and habitat um, just from the natural area and the landscape around you, then adding something like a flower strip isn't necessarily going to make a dent and isn't necessarily going to, um, you know, draw in or recruit the pollinators that you're interested in because there's just so much diversity it sort of gets washed out. Um, but then on the other end, if you're in the middle of a corn and soy field, there's nowhere that you're recruiting wild pollinators from um, by planting a flower strip. So, uh so that's sort of the most recent research when it comes to landscape context and thinking on the, these larger scales about okay what you know what what ecosystems what context do you, does this do our farms or do our research plots exist within? Um, it's talking about sort of that intermediate zone, that Goldilocks zone um, yeah. that I'm, makes yeah. it makes it possible. I'm curious, particularly this year with the uh, plots that are planted uh, for the Pillsbury United community because it's at. Uh, it's down around Chicago and 24th, 22nd in South Minneapolis. So it's really super urban. Yeah. And it's surrounded, the area is surrounded by, you know, street, alley, building, building. And, uh, and so I'm curious about that in particular. Now I know that there is, uh, there are hives not far away. So those are, of course, honeybees. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how that compares to out in Osceola where it's surrounded by, you know, wild areas and river and forested areas and then up in Grand Rapids where they're, 
actually is a lot of open uh, forested areas around this area too. So yeah, so it's going to be going to be interesting to compare the three sites and see what happens. And those are really interesting questions, like in, in yeah, urban landscape, as people get yeah. more interested in uh, urban farming and, and community yeah. gardening. Yeah. Um, that's been one of the questions that's popped up as we are having this big conversation about pollinators and how important they are. Is well, do pollinators exist in urban yeah, landscapes, exactly. and, and how can we how can we support exactly. them? How can we mm-hmm. maybe supplement them in in certain cases with hives or hives of native bees uh, are becoming more popular as well. Um, and there's been some interesting research, uh, some preliminary research here at the university as well, uh, kind of looking into that question and trying to do at least a survey um, to understand, uh, you know, what what pollinators are there to begin with. And and from what I know, if people have been surprised by how how um, how many yeah, there's like how how much of a diversity that sure. exists in, in an urban landscape, and and so that that sort of um, gives credence to and lends support to this idea that you as a home gardener can can help out. You know, mm-hmm. to right. if, if everyone is sort of helping to um, plant flowers, even if it's in their yard, uh, you, it might not seem like it, but you you could be providing corridors, providing uh, fragmented habitat at least mm-hmm. that helps to support these these populations right. over time. Right. Um, in, in something like an urban landscape. Yeah. All right. So I think we should wrap up here soon. Do you have yeah. any like last thoughts or suggestions for people who might be wanting to do more of more of this work of like implementing more floral resources on their farms or in their gardens? Well, there's a lot of resources for for. Um, uh, you know, gardeners and also for farmers too, smaller farms probably, on the Extension webpage, which is extension.umn.edu. And under the Yard and Garden tab, we have a section on native plants. Uh, there's an interesting, we, we haven't talked at all about butterflies and moths, which are more indicator insects than they are pollinators. They're, uh, they're a bit flitty for pollinating, I guess. Um, but they, um, uh, but they, there's also been research that Mary Myers found that uh, a lot of our native grasses serve as habitat and food for the larvae of some of our near extinct uh, butterflies and moths that are out there. So, um, but there's also good information on native plants. There's links to Xerxes Society, and there's also a section on flowers for pollinators that has information there as well. So, if people are looking for plant lists, if they're looking for guidance, if they want to reach out to Extension for help. We're always happy to work with people. We've got our very talented bee squad and the folks there. We've got people like Nathan uh, available too. So um, all of those things, uh, I think, I guess the message is to reach out to the U and, and see what we can do to help you out. Yeah. I'll just put a plug in too that I think for a commercial fruit or vegetable grower, if you went to our website, you wouldn't naturally go to the yard and garden section. Yeah. You'd go to the yeah. commercial yeah. fruit exactly. and veg section. Yeah. But sometimes there are actually more resources in that yard and garden section that might be. We should just put a link in there. (laughs) Yeah. So don't discount that section. There's valuable information in there. And vice versa. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I I think I would uh, add on to what Julie was saying and um, and sort of reference our earlier conversation um, by sort of encouraging or promoting the idea of annual flowers as a as pollinator resources, um, more than probably pollinator habitat over time, at least. Um, and because what's what's intriguing about that to me is um, is it's really low cost. Um, generally, are pretty easy to establish, and you can you can plant annual flowers um, in rows or in patches, yeah. um, and you can sort of be be creative with it and and it's also a pretty low risk thing you know if mm-hmm. if it doesn't work out uh, it's not very expensive mm-hmm. and the next year you can plant something else or, or yeah. you know and, and again like julie said you could um my recommendation would be to try it on some marginal land that might be under landscape fabric or might be under um might be sort of on the side of the road that you just mow uh, and otherwise that you know that could be a very easily maintained um low maintenance mm-hmm. uh flower patch and, and so thinking about annuals in this way uh, there's there's flexibility there um, there's low risk and um, and then and then if you do that if you do end up trying to plant an annual flower uh, strip or a, a flower patch um, again like we were saying in the beginning just continue using your 
as growers using your skills of observation and just pay attention to um, what insects are visiting those flowers and um, and and how that how it's growing how it could be um, managed or, or planted out more effectively in other years and and um, and, and that would be a great sort of entry point into um, supporting pollinators over over space and time for your crop specifically um, and you know, we're all in this sort of still experimental phase about how, how what is this going to look like and, and what does this look like for my my operation or my land. Um, and so much of that comes with just curiosity. Mm-hmm. And I think um, sort of the main takeaway from my research and from what I've talked to Julie about is that annual flowers are a great way to sort of play with that curiosity in, right. in your try something try out. something um, yeah. try something out and again there's a lot of mm-hmm. resources at the university um, to help give you some guidance and and then if you're interested as a grower in um, participating in research too I would encourage people to reach out reach out to professors mm-hmm. uh, researchers at the university um, it's certainly not you know there's a lot of um, it there's a lot of quid pro quos and, and whether you know a grower collaboration might work out, but professors are always uh, welcoming and interested and hungry in, in for those kinds of collaborations. Um, so I would just encourage folks to to reach out, um, and you never know what sort of what sort of projects might might come from that. Uh, I know uh, a lot of people here at the university are are interested in having those conversations and, and want um, a more sort of horizontal and and um, conversational relationship about. Uh, you know what what everyone's observing and, and then so we can move forward as uh, sort of collaborators and, and partners as we uh, work to to, to have yeah, more sustainable definitely. and productive landscapes and I want to just thank Nathan because he gave me a lot of good information from his studies and his research on how to uh, actually whether the, to do an interplanting plot and then also the patch plot. So we were we were debating about that yesterday and talking about that. So thanks, Nathan, for your help oh, sure. with that. Well, thank really you for appreciate you that. your perspective as well. <laughs> That's the fun part about this job mm-hmm. totally. with all these great people. And I'd yeah. also say about your research comment that people should always feel free to reach out to yeah. me and Annie or even yeah. Julie. Mm-hmm. I think it can be intimidating totally. to yeah. like know who to talk to at the university because there are so many people. Yeah. <laughs> but we're sort we of like connect connectors. Yeah. yeah, we can absolutely. Yeah, and then you can read about uh, our faculty research on our uh, Department of Horticultural Science homepage too. You can click on the research section and you can read a lot of information and find those people that are working in areas that you're interested in. Great. Thank you so much, Natalie. Yeah, thanks, Natalie. We really appreciate it.